Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Elmore. My guest today is Dr. Noreen Russell. Noreen is the founder of Russell Coaching for Students, which uses an innovative method of coaching for students with complex challenges, including those who have ADHD, autism, anxiety, and learning differences. Noreen has over 20 years of experience in child development, learning styles, special needs, and also positive parenting philosophies. She's the author of a recently published guide for parents called Asking the Right Questions Before, During, and After Your Child's ADHD Diagnosis. I want to encourage our listeners to check out our last podcast with Noreen around her innovative coaching model for students with complex ADHD. But for today's show, we're going to continue our conversation with more of a focus around Noreen's book, which is asking the right questions about ADHD after your child's diagnosis. So welcome Noreen for the second time. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be back. I really enjoyed your definition of ADHD in our last podcast. How do you conceptualize ADHD? Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you. So I think that it's really important for all of us who are dealing with people who have ADHD, whether they're children, teens, or adults, to be thinking of this as a neurodevelopmental disorder and not a behavioral disorder. I really, I think that we do people a disservice when we talk about behavioral health, because I think it leads to sort of this underlying assumption that, well, if you really tried hard, you could feel better, do better, be better, you know, whereas when we rightly cast it as a matter of neurology for ADHD, then I think we're able to tap into our empathy, we're able to tap into our rational selves, as opposed to being frustrated that this child or teen isn't choosing to do better today. So the three criteria for receiving a diagnosis of ADHD are one, there's an inability of the brain to regulate attention. So it's not an inability to pay attention, which is what a lot of people think, because people with ADHD are perfectly able to pay attention under lots of different circumstances. When the interest is high, when the payoff is important, when there is some kind of threat hanging over them. But the difference is in the person with ADHD, the brain is not automatically regulating where attention goes. So for example, Aaron, for you and I, we're doing this podcast right now. Our brains have automatically checked us into the process of focusing on the podcast, of thinking about what is the topic of today, we're not off thinking about squirrels or birds or video games because our brains have automatically done the work of checking us in. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to, as adults who work with kids and, you know, are trying to help them, we need to help them understand this as well. This is just something that your brain isn't wired to do well. So yeah, we're going to have to maybe treat that. Medication may be very helpful. You may have to work a little bit on it, but it's not that you're choosing to not pay attention 
or that constant reminders to pay attention are in any way helpful because they're not, you know, telling a child who has ADHD to focus is about the least helpful thing you can do. So the first criteria is really that inability of the brain to regulate attention where it should be. The second criteria for diagnosis is impulsivity, which again, can look behavioral because sometimes a child is more impulsive. Sometimes a child is less impulsive. They don't choose to do impulsive things every day. Their brain doesn't lead them to make impulsive decisions all the time. And so again, I think it can lead us as adults to think, well, this is willful chosen behavior as opposed to neurological impulsivity that really is where the child knows better, but doesn't do better in the moment. And then the third criteria, which some children meet and some don't, is the hyperactivity, which can be physical hyperactivity or can be a sense of restlessness in the body where you don't see a lot of movement. You know, that's not the child who's running around the room, but it's the child who feels restless internally or maybe is bobbing their foot all the time or tapping their fingers all the time. Or even I've seen, you know, kids who become pickers because they have that physical restlessness. And then of course, we're familiar with the hyperactivity in the verbal form where you have the child who just has a lot to say and talks more than would be socially expected in a situation. So Mm -hmm. those are the three diagnostic criteria. And then of course, there are a whole host of other facets of ADHD that, that often go along with those three official criteria. And one of those that's getting a lot of attention in the literature recently, and I think might be brought back in the next edition is just this emotional dysregulation that goes along with ADHD, but that's not officially part of the diagnostic criteria right now. Yeah. Well said. I, I love that succinct definition. And for those out there who may be wondering, okay, is my child, do they fall on this spectrum or are they just a child who is, you know, excited about the world and hard to sit still? And how, how do you distinguish when it crosses the threshold into an, a diagnosis versus a child just acting like a kid? That's why it's important to follow the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations and get an evaluation because there it is. Yep qualified medical professionals and licensed psychologists out there who can make the diagnosis and who can, you know, take the data, which is going to involve written questionnaires, might involve computer testing. It certainly will involve getting a thorough history of the student. You know, there are criteria that need to be reached in order to have an ADHD diagnosis. Not everyone is a little ADHD. Not every child who has a lot of energy has ADHD. But if the question is out there, we want the answer. Just like if we're not sure a child can see the board in class, we take them for an eye exam. We're not sure if the bone is broken, we take them to have an x-ray. We're not sure we have COVID, we take the COVID test. Same thing should happen with ADHD. Get mm -hmm. the evaluation done and figure out is there or is there not, you know, enough evidence for a diagnosis. And for people who are maybe listening, thinking, well, everyone has ADHD these days, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is there's a lot more ADHD awareness. Yes. And if you hear of the neighbor or, you know, your cousin taking their child to get an evaluation. Well, 
they're going because they have some reason to go, right? There's some reason to think that they might have ADHD. So it's not that everyone who goes for an ADHD evaluation ends up with a diagnosis, but rather that people are going for an evaluation because they're seeing something that looks like ADHD. There are plenty of people who go for an ADHD evaluation and don't end up with an ADHD diagnosis, but that doesn't fit our cultural story right now about ADHD quite as well. But Mm -hmm. the bottom line is there are criteria, the criteria need to get met and only certain qualified medical professionals and licensed psychologists can make that diagnosis. Yes. And where would you recommend parents start that process if they're wondering and they want their child evaluated? Would you have them go straight to a psychologist? I know a lot of parents go to their pediatrician first. What do you recommend as the best steps? Many people have no choice but to go to their pediatrician, you know, given right. sort of the the lack of mental health opportunities and, and care providers in this country. So absolutely, you can start with your pediatrician. Pediatricians are the most common person to diagnose and treat ADHD. So, you know, there are families who need to move on from the pediatrician where, you know, the ADHD is complex, or maybe it's not responded to the first couple of medications, or the pediatrician feels like they want to refer the family to a specialist like a neurologist or a psychiatrist, you know, but it absolutely is a process that can start with the pediatrician. And then I would just say as an advocate for children, if you don't feel like you're getting enough information from your pediatrician, because gosh, do they have a lot on their plates these days? Don't be afraid to, to seek out a second opinion. Don't be afraid to go to the specialist yourself, but most parents, you know, have so much respect for their pediatrician, that's a great place to start. And the pediatrician may be able to provide you with referrals. If that's not the case, you certainly can go to psychologytoday.com and use their database to find a licensed psychologist to do a complete evaluation. And then can also look for a psychiatrist or a neurologist both of whom it would be in their wheelhouse to do that diagnosis. I actually think that's one of the primary reasons I wrote the book is because it's not very clear cut Mm -hmm. what to do when you're not sure, okay, is this typical behavior or does this go beyond typical behavior? Because it's unusual to have so many different professions and professional backgrounds that can diagnose something, you know, the same is not true for a broken bone or for poor vision. You know, ADHD is singularly confusing in that way. Very true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's very true. There's so many options for where to go to get help, which is nice, but also can be very confusing and overwhelming at the beginning of the process. Yeah. And I would add, if if someone listening is looking on psychologytoday.com, make sure you search for somebody who does assessment or testing. Because as a clinical therapist, sometimes I would get calls for people interested in that. And although I am qualified to do it, I wasn't set up at the time, didn't have the the testing with me. And so you really want to find a therapist who is actively doing the assessment and actively testing. So in the filter options, you can add that in instead of looking for therapy, you're looking for assessment and that will weed out a lot of time and frustration of being told to go somewhere else. Do you want to speak a little bit about the difference between getting accommodations through school for something like ADHD versus getting a clinical ADHD diagnosis? It might be different in different States, but I know when I worked in the school system, 
some kids would be able to qualify for school accommodations under the title of ADHD, but they actually may or may not have had a clinical diagnosis, which I found really interesting and also confusing. Well, this is another reason, right? Why I think that ADHD is just one of those uniquely frustrating diagnoses to navigate as a parent. What do you mean? The school can do an evaluation and tell me that he has ADHD, but they can't really diagnose him with ADHD because it's a school evaluation. I mean, to the typical parent who doesn't have a psychology or a medical background, that's not going to make any sense whatsoever. What is the difference between becoming qualified for services because there are enough indicators that look like ADHD versus a medical diagnosis from someone outside the school system. I mean, even as I'm sitting here saying the words to you, I'm laughing because it's just a ridiculous differentiation, but it's one that has to happen in order for schools to be able to do their job and to not overstep. So this is what is important for parents to understand. You can request an evaluation at school. School should and often does do an evaluation and they do it for more than ADHD, right? Like they do it for autism. They do it for learning differences, for dyslexia, all kinds of things. And the school evaluation, the job of that evaluation is to decide whether or not your child is eligible for accommodations and or services, but it doesn't provide you except in certain situations with a medical diagnosis. Now, what's interesting is I'm in Florida and for certain scholarships that are run through the state, they will take your IEP mm-hmm. as evidence that your child has autism or ADHD. So that clear line in the sand, Erin, that you and I are thinking about that school does the evaluation so you can get programs and services in the school system actually is a little larger than that in Florida. So I can't imagine all 50 states and sort of how it works. But outside of school, you could see a psychiatrist, you could see a neurologist, you could see your pediatrician who would give you a medical diagnosis that would then go through insurance and qualify you to, for example, receive treatments, services, medications using your insurance. And it would go in that child's medical record. So it's terribly confusing, Erin. And I feel for parents who are trying to navigate this. I mean, I myself had a PhD in psychology and I thought it was confusing enough to ultimately write a book about because I couldn't get a handle on all of the different options out there. And you would ask and people would be like, oh, we went to this person. He's a neurologist. Mm-hmm. I love him. Oh, we went here to, you know, the university psychiatric clinic, you know, and as a parent, you want so much to make the right decision and the best decision. And so it's almost impossible to understand why all of these people can do the diagnosis part and where you should go. What's the best fit for your child? And I'm so happy that you wrote this book because yeah, I mean, I, I work with kids and teens and worked in schools for a long time. And I, I also had a doctorate degree and was very confused by this 
particular process for ADHD, also autism too. I think that happens in the school system as well. And I would be working with these kids in the school and, and think to myself, you clearly do not have a clinical diagnosis of ADHD, yet you have all these accommodations for ADHD, which for some kids was actually really helpful. I'm not saying that that's a problem, but then I think it leads to teachers and parents and even the kid themselves being confused about like, oh, I have ADHD. And it's like, maybe you do, maybe you don't. So yeah, I think it's, it's just interesting. So I'm sure in your book, you outline this, but you know, for parents who just want the practical help at school, maybe they go that route and they don't pursue the medical evaluation, but for parents who want all of it and to really know, does this, does my child have a clinical diagnosis or not a medical diagnosis? You can take that information and then bring it to the school and get the best of both worlds. It's so funny how it all, everyone wants to help, right? But it's yeah. like too many cooks in the kitchen. So I'm glad that your book goes into how, how to manage all of this. Important for parents to also understand that when you do the school evaluation, the school is not in a position where they can necessarily follow the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Academy of Psychiatry for Child and Adolescence, where they can really talk about multimodal treatment. They can talk about how medication is first-line treatment. And so I think it's just important for parents to understand if what you do is go through the school evaluation process, you are going to miss some of the complete evaluation process that you would get in a medical provider's office or with a psychologist. And you may miss getting some of the recommendations about treatment because the school is of course going to be focused on, okay, what are the accommodations and services we can provide at school? But it's a limited piece of the puzzle that you get at school, I'm not faulting school for that. That's their role. That's what they've been trained to do. That's how it works. But for parents, I think it's important to understand. And if you don't mind, I'll just briefly tell you this story. So I have a client in my practice now, a family, and they had always had school evaluations. And this child who's now a teenager always ended up being identified as a student who had trouble in reading. And so she was given a diagnosis in the school vernacular, if you will. So she was identified as having, not diagnosed, a specific learning disability in reading. And when I started working with her about a year or so ago, you know, watching her work raised for me the question of, is there something else going on here? And so I said to mom, I think it would be really valuable to get either a complete psychoeducational evaluation or psychiatric evaluation, because I think there's something going on here. And turns out that that teenager, high school student, actually the primary diagnosis at this time is ADHD. And she doesn't really have difficulty with reading, but the ADHD was not caught at school for whatever reason. And so she has been in a school system for many, many years and tracked as a student who has a hard time reading when in actuality, the primary problem is ADHD and her inability of the brain to regulate focus. And so now that that has been diagnosed and identified and treated, 
it's fascinating to watch her because she's actually a really great reader and having gotten to the root of the real problem has been very empowering for this particular student. And she now believes, oh, I am right. I am smart. Mm -hmm. I can read this. Like if I take the time to read this, I can process all these vocabulary words. And it's just been so much fun to watch her flourish. And misdiagnoses can happen everywhere. They don't just happen at school. They can happen anywhere. But I guess my point would be as a parent, if you feel like there's something else going on, or if you want to make sure your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted, you know, there's never anything wrong with also getting an outside evaluation. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Continuing education is both a requirement and a learning opportunity, but finding the right CE provider can be challenging. AATBS, a triad company, offers continuing education for psychologists, social workers, marriage and family therapists, counselors, and behavior analysts. CE courses are available both individually and as part of our new All Access Pass. All Access Pass provides a library of over 250 unique courses. That's more than 800 hours of CEs, with new courses being added every month. As a special offer, Behavioral Health Today listeners can save 15% on CE purchases. Visit us at aatbs.com bht and enter promo code bht15 during checkout. That's aatbs.com bht. Check out our library and check off your CE requirements today. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that story you shared because it's so true. I mean, it's, you know, she was having a hard time with something about reading, right? But to go so many years and be told, oh, you're a bad reader, like that becomes a part of your identity. And if that's not true, <laughs> that's so difficult. And how beautiful to see that reframe when you get to the root of what was really going on. And it, I'm sure that empowered her moving forward into high school and college and, you know, the rest of her life. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's a really good example of why it can be very important to, to go a little deeper, look a little bit wider. And thankfully your book can help people through how to do that. Cause even us in the field are confused sometimes with which next step to find a resource. And again, I think it's cause there's so many people that want to help, but we got to streamline it a little bit. Usually if there is a medical problem, there's a medical specialist for it. You know, yes. Yes. there's one-to-one -one correspondence in ADHD. There's like a one to five. And so yes. What do we do there? It's hard. It's really genuinely confusing. It's like, where do you start? Right. Yeah. And yeah, where, where do you start? So let's say that somebody does get their child an ADHD diagnosis. What would be just the next steps that you'd recommend for parents to take to seek help? Okay. So I would recommend the next steps as per what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends, because Okay. Um, we have aligned our practice very clearly with what those recommendations are. So the American Academy of Pediatrics says, once there is a diagnosis, there are several action steps, but the treatment plan should consist of medication, parent education and training, a school plan and skills training for older students. So that is what research tells us. And so, you know, this is a difficult one to navigate because of course, parents often would like for their child to not have ADHD. Parents often would like for their kids to not have to take medication daily. But I think it is important 
to approach this scientifically and to understand that medication is first-line treatment. But it is not enough alone that there is very specific education and skills training for parents that especially for younger kids can be so vital to having a little more peace and calm in the house. But I think it's also so important in the teenage years because I think that ADHD diagnosis in the teenage years, sometimes we still struggle as parents with thinking, well, they're just not motivated. They don't care, you know, they're not trying. And and I think, you know, I wish that we had, you know, some kind of nationally accessible parent training for elementary school, middle school, and high school. Because I think there are different issues that come up at different times. And I think our high schoolers often get labeled as unmotivated or, or, you know, they start to engage in risky behavior. They start smoking pot and their parents are like, you know, ultimately, well, you know, that's just what's going to happen and not thinking about, is there a possible connection to ADHD? So what would I say are the first steps? Making sure that you have a complete multimodal treatment plan and that you have a treatment team. And so who's on that team? Is the pediatrician on that team? Is there a psychiatrist on that team? Is there a therapist? Because there's also a mood disorder or an autism diagnosis. You know, is there a nurse practitioner who might be working with a psychiatrist, you know, and who's on the team at school, but having a complete multimodal treatment plan and a treatment team and knowing who is on that team and what their roles are, I think is the most important thing. And Mm -hmm. I think what tends to happen more often instead of assembling a team of people is we bounce. We bounce from the therapist back to the pediatrician, over to the psychiatrist, back to school, as opposed to thinking, I need all of these people on the team all the time. I need to be communicating with the team, which is what the American Academy of Pediatrics says, is there needs to be a medical home base for the child, but there needs to be a team approach. And so many times I know in my practice, people have been here, they've been here, they've been here. They've traveled sometimes across the country to seek treatment, but they don't have a treatment team or a treatment Mm -hmm. plan. And so that I think is vital, is reframing this from who's the person who's going to treat this or solve this to who are all of the people who are going to help my child and myself. That's a really great perspective. It almost reminds me of when someone has a chronic illness, right? It's like, you need your PT, you need your medical doctor, you need your massage therapist or whatever it could be, right? You have to build in treatment from different angles. And in a lot of ways, ADHD is like that. It's chronic, it's neurological, but not beyond health. No, that's exactly the word that the American Academy of Pediatrics uses. You need to recognize that this is a chronic illness. The nature of it is chronic. So yeah, you've exactly hit the nail on the head. It's not going away. It's not disappearing. And it requires consistent management. It's chronic. I love that you brought that up. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I have to wonder too, if there's almost a parallel process in, this is just like my, my clinician's hat on, but you know, parallel process in the fact that you know, ADHD shows up as dysregulated, impulsive, hard to stick something out, hard to focus. And the 
seeking of treatment seems to be that way too. Like you just described bouncing around and not knowing where to go. And not that that's anyone's fault. Everyone's really looking for relief, but it is interesting that in some ways, I think building a treatment team that is consistent is in itself a way to help anchor and contain and treat the symptom in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And and I think we also don't necessarily think of ADHD as being complicated enough to need a treatment team. You know, you get cancer and people think, okay, we need all the things in place. Right. But sometimes we sort of shortchange our, our kids with ADHD, even our complex ones into thinking, well, all we need, you know, is a script from the pediatrician or all we need is the 504 or maybe an IEP, but really our kids, those who are going to do best, who are going to have the best symptom control and the best outcomes are going to be those who have a whole team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I know as a therapist, one of the main questions I would get from parents when it was in regard to ADHD or autism or anything neurological was just a lot of concerns about starting medication. Is there anything that you would say to parents or any way to encourage them that that medication is appropriate for something like this? I know that you said that was a number one, you know, next step. And I can, I can just imagine some parents feel a bit nervous about that. So what would you say to them? I think most parents feel nervous about that. Right. And I think underneath that, I think parents may feel some sense of grief or loss, right? And and that's something that might be very helpful to process in an ADHD support group or, you know, with a professional who whose specialization really is ADHD. Because I think underneath that response is fear, sadness, grief, like why does my child have ADHD? And I wish they didn't have ADHD. And so I wish they didn't have to take medication. And maybe if we don't take medication, they'll be just fine and okay, right? So I'm not a medical provider. I could never give anyone any suggestions on, you know, what medication, what dose, anything like that. But what all of us as professionals can say as a unified body is that it's very clear that the scientific research shows that medication is first line treatment and has the biggest impact on ameliorating ADHD symptoms. And that I think is at least the minimum that parents should be told when they receive an ADHD diagnosis, you know, that medication is the single most powerful tool in your toolbox can't be the only tool and it may alone not be enough. We're going to need that parent education. We're going to need a school plan. We may need a therapist for comorbid conditions, but if we could collectively as the whole group of differently trained people get to a point where we're saying to parents, medication is safe and it's first line treatment, then we can more effectively deal with what is the medication not helping? And I guess for me as an advocate for kids with ADHD, I don't think there's anything irresponsible in saying that, you know, it's, it's not, I can't provide you with medical advice, but I can sure tell you that the research is clear and urge you to talk with your medical provider. And, and I guess the other thing that we can do is help parents talk through 
well, we went to the doctor's office and all they did was give us a script, you know, well, let's unpack that a little bit, you know, like, why did they do that? And why does it feel insufficient? And what did they tell you about when to be back in touch? You know, I think there's just a lot of processing of the diagnosis and treatment that people like you, Erin, people like me, you know, some of the helping professions could really play a valuable role in helping parents to come to a better understanding of that. And I'd, I'd like to see that quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I think that's so accurate. I mean, and of course there's grief around that. How could there not be? So that makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right that that might be something that's needed for parents is just allowing themselves to have the own time and space to process what's going on for them in regard to their child. Cause it, it is really hard, you know, in some ways it might be relieving to, to have a diagnosis and have a direction finally, but it can be a lot to, to let go of as well. So I think that was well said. Now you have a whole model of coaching for students, Russell's coaching for students. Tell us about that. Tell us more about your program and a little bit maybe about how it came to be, but mostly how it fits into this conversation of helping families who have kids with ADHD and other diagnoses as well. Sure. Sure. So the model actually was sort of emerging at the same time that we were writing the book. And I think it's sort of all of one piece in the sense of, you know, in the book, what I'm trying to do is help parents to become better educated about what questions to ask and how do you become an advocate for your child with ADHD, right? And, and you have to ask a lot more questions than you do if your child has poor eyesight or a broken bone, you just do. And so we're writing the book at the same time, we're realizing how important it is for us to be clear about what is our model of coaching and how does it align with these professional recommendations in the field of psychology and medicine, right? And so in our model, there are six components to our connected coaching model. And the first is the individual student and their history and their story. The second is the student's team. And so we'll have during our intake process, a conversation about who's on the team currently, you know, who do we communicate with at school? Who's treating, who's been a part of this child's treatment team in the past. The third component for us is science and using a brain-based paradigm of, of ADHD and symptoms and not calling them behaviors. So we even have training at my practice on how to gently, tactfully start to introduce the word symptom into school meetings, as opposed to using behaviors so that we can begin to use a neurological and a medical model of ADHD. The fourth component for us is data, right? How is child responding to school plans? How is child responding to coaching? Are grades going up? Are grades going down? Is tension at home being relieved? Are parents still fighting with their kids about certain things? So data, 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 six different categories of data. Fifth one is leadership knowledge and kind of what our leadership team brings to the table in terms of a multidisciplinary approach to coaching that takes into account Yes, development of the child, but also positive parenting and also trends in school and education. And it's really 
incredibly deep cross-disciplinary work because it's not just understanding how does the child develop, but what are the trends in school? What's going on with charter schools? What's going on with private schools? And then lastly, and, and I'm super proud of this, is we have our newly designed, custom designed software that supports our process. So we made a huge investment this year in developing a software that is designed around our coaching process, the assessments we do, the goal setting we use, the data that we collect. And so that's our, our sixth component. And I think for me and, and for the team in general, we have 20 coaches at Russell Coaching. We really just wanted to say to the world, this is based in science. You know, this isn't sending your kid to a coach who's going to talk with them about, well, you know, you could organize this way or you could organize this way or, you know, that it is much deeper and richer a process than that. And we wanted to become advocates for coaching because we've seen where coaching really can be the missing piece for students. So that's our model, six components of it based in science, evaluated by science and really trying to make a hands-on measurable change for students. Love it. Love it. And where would you say Russell's coaching for students or coaching in general fits into the, you know, systemic modalities of treating ADHD? When, when would a parent need to seek out coaching in addition to medication, for example, or other treatments? Sure. So, you know, you'll hear some people say, and it may sound a little crass to other people, but it is sort of a helpful, catchy phrase, pills and skills right? Um, <laughs> I have heard that before. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's not always the kind of thing I'm most comfortable saying, cause it can sound a little crass, but it is a catchy way to remember what does your child with ADHD need pills, parent skills, skills at school, and then their very own skills. So, you know, I think the time for parents to seek out coaching is when they are seeing that their child is overwhelmed by the demands of school and doesn't have the study skills, the academic skills, the executive functioning skills that they need to be as successful as they can given their intellectual potential. So what does that really mean, right? You know, you have a smart kid, you know, you have a bright kid, you know, you have a kid whose IQ is at least average and they're struggling in school, they're super frustrated, their stress level is high, their grades are poor, that is a good time to seek out help. In the elementary school years, often those students will allow the parents to be the helpers. And then we cross this sort of critical threshold sometime in middle school with puberty where some students, many students find that they are a little bit less willing to have parents help. And that is a good time to reach out and get a coach involved because your child in middle school and high school still needs you to be their parent. They need to be loved. They need to be loved unconditionally. You need to be listening for social and emotional adjustment. You need to be paying attention to who they're hanging out with, right? You don't need to be managing school. You don't need to be the school secretary. And so when you see that your child doesn't have the study skills they need, is falling behind academically, or is stressed and frustrated by school, I would say those are three indicators where it might be good to make that initial call and see who is out there, who's available, what their methodology works and, and how they can help your, your middle school or high schooler. 
Yeah. I love that idea of freeing the parent up to just be the parent because that in and of itself is more than a full-time job, right? So giving them that support to focus on the parenting aspect and then outsourcing to someone you trust, the coaching aspect sounds really nice. What would you recommend parents look for in a coach? What kind of qualities make a good coach? I think first and foremost, I want to be as frank in this part of the conversation as I have been in other parts of the conversation. It's really important for parents to understand that coaching is unlicensed and unregulated. Okay. So when you are looking for a coach, if you think you did due diligence when you were looking for the pediatrician, when you were pregnant, you need to do at least that much due diligence with coaching because anybody can call themselves a coach. There are lots of great coaches out there. You will be able to find someone who's a great coach, but just please keep in mind that there are no state or federal regulations for coaching. And so you're going to have to do due diligence the same way you did when you were thinking about taking that precious baby to the pediatrician, you know, after they were born. What should you look for? This is what I say is I think first and foremost, you should look for experience, right? Because coaching is not a discipline that you can get a degree in. You can get a degree in positive psychology, which is very related to coaching, but you can't get a degree in coaching. Now there are all of these certification programs, right? But they're kind of as good as the organization or the person who is having you pay to come to them. So experience, I think is at the top of my list. And I think to drill down further with that experience with the type of student that you have, right? So we're carving out a niche for ourselves that is definitely related to complex kids, kids who have two or more diagnoses. So they have ADHD and they have giftedness. They have anxiety and they have autism. They have autism and they're gifted, you know, whatever it is, whether it's 2E or, or just comorbid conditions along with anxiety and autism, but you want that coach to have experience with the kind of student you have. So if you have a kid who has autism, don't go for a coach who is like, oh, well, I've got 20 years of experience and I've had some kids with autism in my classroom. No, you want someone who has worked directly with kids with autism in a coaching setting and been successful. The second thing beyond experience is I would look for a, a really clear answer to the question of how do you measure success, right? What is it that's going to be different in a semester, six months, nine months as a result of coaching? And you're going to hear from most coaches, some form of, well, we want to have achieved the goals that were set because that's fundamental to the coaching process, but they should also be able to tell you how are they measuring that success? So I know for us, while grades aren't everything, we are looking for a decrease in missing assignments. We are looking for an increase in quarter grades or semester grades. We are looking for decreased stress with the student on the student's part around school and more feeling capable, which is something we check in with them during weekly coaching meetings. And then lastly, we're looking for reduced family stress because if the student is doing better and the coach is the one helping as opposed to the parent, hopefully there's less stress. So I think 
in looking for a coach, you want to get a really clear sense of what their experience is and then what do they use as, you know, kind of the outcome measurements. And then also need to understand that coaching will not be covered by insurance anywhere in the country because it is not a medical intervention. And so you may need to be looking for a coach that affordable for you, or maybe does group coaching or something so that it is affordable. Those are really good insights. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm listening to all this and just thinking that not only is this journey probably really overwhelming for parents, but I'm sure at some point it can be really despairing of just, you know, is, is there ever going to be hope for my child? How are they going to be able to function? And do you have any thoughts or encouragement that you want to leave with parents if their child is in this category that and any hope you want to leave them with? You know, here's the thing that I think I love about working with kids with ADHD is it really is so treatable. It really is so incredibly treatable. You can have such success despite having ADHD. And so I'm kind of the eternal optimist, you know, like I I remember in graduate school, one of the professors saying, what are you smiling about? And I'm like, what do I not have to, to smile about, you know, but I am definitely, you know, the eternal optimist. And I like working with kids who have ADHD because you can make a difference. So I'm going to tell you, I think the story of Colin. Colin is a student who came to us in ninth grade. He was constantly being sent to the Dean's office for not paying attention in class, for drawing, for doing things he wasn't supposed to be doing in class. He was not disruptive. He was well-liked, right? But his grades were not good. And he was off task a lot. And he was at a fairly rigorous private school. And of course, they and his parents wanted him to get on task. So he started working with me in ninth grade. We met weekly, you know, part of our process is doing a lot of observation. And so I would watch Colin work and I'm always like, there's something else that's going on here in addition to the ADHD. And I just can't figure out what it is. And so periodically every, you know, month or two, I'd call a psychiatrist and I'd say, you know, this is how Colin is doing. And I'm still seeing this something. I don't know what it is. Next time he's in the office, like, see if you can like put your finger on what it is. Well, you know what? It took us a year of sharing observations for the psychiatrist to figure out Colin had a little bit of OCD that was really looking like impulsivity. Cause I kept saying, he's like, he has to do all these things and he's erasing his work and redoing his work and enlarging his work and shrinking his work. And I said, it's, it's like, almost like a compulsion. I don't know, but there's something about the way he's working that there's something else going on there other than ADHD. It looks impulsive, like he's deciding over and over again. But the more I was studying it, the more I was like, there's just something else going on. So his psychiatrist was like, okay, okay. You know, and we have a really good relationship anyway, but he finally kind of got his finger on the fact that, and I, I don't know what it is, right? I don't diagnose that this was a little bit of OCD in Colin's personality and began treating that and began talking with Colin about, you know, what does that mean to have some OCD? What are some behaviors 
that you, you know, can recognize in yourself as being a little bit OCD. And for Colin, it was so empowering, right? Like, oh, this is why I have to get this blow up of the art to exactly the right pixelation, you know? And so once we had that diagnosis, in addition to the ADHD, and he was able to be treated for that, you know, that really turned things around. And that happened right before the pandemic, which I I think was good timing. And then, you know, he struggled during the pandemic, but he is a senior now at you know, a really rigorous top-notch private school. He is the most phenomenal human being. He's so well-liked at school. He is getting A's, maybe one B a semester, totally on task in school, well-developed hobbies and interests outside of school, and a happy, happy young adult whose parents adore him and are so proud of him. And that's the thing, right? That's the beauty of having that team and the chronic model for treatment and continuing to deep dive into it. It's like, we figured it out. It wasn't that hard, right? We needed the psychiatrist and we needed school and we needed the coach, but we got it figured out. And this kid for sure is going to go off to school next year. He's going to be incredibly successful. ADHD is not a big boulder in his way. We've moved that big boulder out of the way. And so that's really, I think, what's so rewarding and what has driven me to expand the practice you know, really pretty dramatically. 20 coaches is a lot of coaches. We see over 150 students a week. But This is the exciting thing, right? Is you can make a difference. ADHD is very treatable. It's not, you know, equivalent to something like borderline personality disorder or something that's going to be so much more challenging. And so, yeah, that's, that's Colin in a nutshell. And, and if there was ever a kid who looked like he was going to spend the entire length of four years in the Dean's office, it was Colin. And if there's ever a kid whose parents are more proud of him. I don't know who it is. And he's just, he's a phenomenal young man. What a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm And I'm sure a lot of our audience just needs to hear that, that, you know, it doesn't have to feel the way it does at the beginning, that it really is treatable. And from the clinical side, I'm thinking of a couple phrases that I heard during my program about ADHD. And, and one of them is if you've seen one person with ADHD, you've seen one person with ADHD. And so I was just thinking of that when you're talking about everything is unique and there's different overlays and different comorbid diagnoses. And so I can see the huge benefit to having a whole chronic treatment team to delve into your individual child and what's going on and trying to get eyes on the unique characteristics of their ADHD. And then the second phrase I was thinking was we kind of joke in our field that if you're going to have one diagnosis as neurological, the best one that you can have is ADHD, because as you're saying, it is the most treatable, very treatable. So I'm glad that you're leaving that message of hope with our audience. That's wonderful. It is so treatable. It really is. And so you know, I would say to parents, educate yourselves and be hopeful and be optimistic and, and do that because that's what your child wants and deserves also, right? They're going to catch your spirit. You know, they're going to interpret 
how big of a problem this is from the attitude you have. And if you're like, yeah, you know, your brain works a little differently and, you know, yeah, we take some medicine for it. And maybe you see a coach or maybe you have accommodations at school. But the reason we do all those things is so we can move ADHD out of your way because it's not going to get in the way of a successful future for you. And once you're saying that to your student, they feel like that too. They can feel the weight coming off you. Absolutely. Well, where can we learn more about your coaching, Russell Coaching for Students? Sure. So you can find us at Russell Coaching that has two S's and two L's. So russellcoaching.com. And what I want to make sure that your readers understand is that we are a national coaching practice. So we have coaches across the country. We see students across the country. We work through using virtual sessions and it works incredibly well. So regardless of whether you're in Texas, Missouri, California, New York, we are available to coach your child. So russellcoaching.com and we work with students across the U.S. and Canada. You can go to Amazon for the book, which is in both print and Kindle editions. And there's a link to the book also on our website, but the easiest thing is to go to Amazon and search up asking the right questions about ADHD or type my name, Noreen Russell into that bar, the search bar, and you'll be able to come up with it. We do have an Instagram, which is Russell Coaching LLC. And of course, we're on LinkedIn for people who might want to link up professionally. And then for those who truly want to talk to a person, I am so excited to always say we still have a person who answers the phone at our Wow. And the number is 212-716-1161. And you'll get our own very dear Carla who will take care of you and love you and get you all set up to do an intake for coaching. And I'm also happy to share with you that we have really got a great turnaround time. So usually we can get parents in for an intake within a week, and then we can get their students set up with coaching the next Monday or Tuesday. And so we are not on a wait list of three to six months. That's pretty amazing, honestly, in this field. So that's wonderful. Tell Carla to get ready. I feel like her phone's going to be ringing off the hook soon. <laughs> Handle it. She's the best. Okay, okay good. We'll and we'll definitely include all of those resources in the show notes. So people don't have to remember, they can reference our show notes to get that information. Great. Great. We are so glad that we got to have you back a second time. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And this has just been so insightful and I hope that it will help our families who have kids that fall into these categories. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate very much you inviting me back. I really do. It's such a pleasure to talk with you and so important to get the word out. And I want to say that if there are parents out there who would like a copy of the book, who would have a hard time affording the book, we are going to have 10 copies that we can give away to parents who are listening to this show. And they do need to call the office to see if they're one of those first 10, but we have 10 free copies of the book that we can get out to parents if the price point of the book makes it not feasible for them right now. That's amazing. I love that you're able to do that. Thank you so much, Noreen. It's been so great. Thank you.
I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Noreen and I today. It's been great to have you with us. I want to remind you that this podcast, its resources, and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. So go ahead and check out our webpage, triadhq.com slash BHT, and explore our archive of podcasts and other resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community, and if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.